Okay. Uh, let's uh, get started with the word of prayer. Uh, Father, we do thank you again for this day to, um, to gather together, Lord, and to uh, spend some time uh, looking uh, closer at your word, Father. We pray again by your spirit that you would uh, ignite a fire within us, Lord, a, a, a um, passion and a love for your word, Father, to see how it all um, hangs together as one story, Father, ultimately testifying to your glory and to uh, the love that you have shown to us through your Son, Christ Jesus. Um, we just pray now, Lord, that you would remove any and all distractions during this time, Father, and that you would also be with me, that my words would be edifying to your sons and daughters in this room. And we pray all these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. 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 All right, some new faces here. Good to see that. Um, was hunting around for a, uh, one of these music stands, because I always feel awkward once again. Standing off to the side, looking at my notes here. Um, no, just carry it. Um, so, where were we? Okay, week three. So, we'll be talking about the themes of Exodus and Entrance, which is my shorthand for the conquest under Joshua. Uh, so, we'll be talking about that today. But, as always, I think we should do a quick little review, especially since there are new faces here, just to kind of catch us up to where, uh, where we've come from. Um, you remember that I, I mentioned... Uh, for those of you who are here, that the Bible essentially, especially the Old Testament, is one continuous story, right? So it's made up of many books, many different authors, different emphases, but ultimately there's one story going on here. And uh, the way I described it is, it's the story of kingdom through covenant. God bringing his kingdom uh, uh, to the earth uh, by way of various relationships that he establishes with human beings. That is, uh, covenants that he makes. Right? So the ultimate goal... Um, to stay in the, in the Lord's Prayer is that God's kingdom would come, God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? Um, so he plants um, uh, Adam and Eve in the garden that is his own sacred space, that is where God's special presence dwells, and he makes Adam both a priest and a king uh, to rule and to minister over his creation. Right? And he gives Adam, his wife Eve, and he is to love her. And he is to um, be a servant leader to his wife. And we see in the, in the fall narrative of Genesis 3 how Adam essentially uh, defaults on all three of those roles. Right? Instead of having dominion over, over uh, the earth, he um, places himself under the authority of both uh, essentially listening to the voice of his wife and, wife and ultimately to the serpent. And instead of being a, uh, a priest protecting the sacred space of God, he lets in this unclean animal, this serpent, into the sacred space, into the garden, to challenge the word of God, to call God's character into question. And whereas Adam should have crushed the head of the serpent, um, he permits it. And from there he listens and he obeys the word of the serpent and he, and he believes all of these um, slanderous things that the serpent says about the character of God. Um, and that's all in the first three chapters there um, now one of the ways we're looking at this story is in terms of the uh, threefold kind of um, topology of creation, fall, redemption okay. so you have both the creation and fall matter right there in the first three chapters of Genesis, and then there's a sense in which the rest of the Bible, from Genesis, um, from Genesis 3:15 to Gen- to Revelation uh, 22, all of this is the story, the unfolding story 
of God's redemptive plan. And it happens in stages and increments, um, ultimately culminating in the work of Christ. Um, one thing that I want to focus on and I have continuously is um, Genesis 3.15. I do think that that is a, um, a key verse in understanding the rest of what is happening in the Old Testament. So I'm just going to read that again so we can get our bearings there. It's in the process after the fall narrative where uh, God is both places a curse on, on Adam and he places a curse on, uh, well, he's going to place a curse on Eve. And in the middle of this, he's, um, he's speaking to the serpent. And God says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So God establishes this kind of rivalry, this, this enmity between these two seeds. Right? Um, good way of, of translating and thinking about the word enmity there is hostile intent. There's this kind of uh, a deadly rivalry between these two seeds. And, that, and those, that kind of what I call seed theology plays throughout the Old Testament. Right? It's, it's uh, one of the ways of looking at uh, the Old Testament that helps us see it hanging together as one ultimate story. Okay. So, we, last week, when we covered election, themes of election and enslavement, uh, under, under the uh, rubric of election, we looked at the story essentially of Noah, we focused more on Noah and Abraham, and we kind of looked at the historical situation in between them. Um, you'll note that how is this on Yahweh one here? Um, yeah, this is um, Roman numeral 1C, Redemption uh, 1. The words of Noah's father, if you remember, I, I contrasted the genealogies between there was a wicked Lamech that's related to Cain in Genesis 4, starting in verse 23. He kills a young boy and he writes a poem about it. He sings a song about it. And then there is Lamech, the father of Noah, and these are descendants of Seth, which I would say represents the seed of the woman. And Cain, by killing his brother Abel, demonstrates that he's of the seed of the serpent. So you have these parallel, yet contrasting genealogies there. And uh, Genesis 5, verse 28, when Lamech, this is the other Lamech, Noah's dad, uh, when Lamech had lived... 182 years he had a son he named him Noah and said he will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground uh, caused by the ground the Lord has cursed that is to say um, that his, uh, his Noah's father Lamech kind of highlights what's the expectation of deliverance that there's going to be someone who is going to reverse the curse on the ground which immediately takes the reader back to Genesis 3. Right? It's even the same Hebrew term, you know, Adama, um, which is where we get the term Adam. Adam was made from the ground. Adam from the Adama. Um, he's taken from the dust. So, Lamech is expecting a deliverer to come, one that is going to reverse the curse that God placed in Genesis chapter 3. That's the expectation here. Um, we find out later that um, Noah is in the one, though he's a type of kind of a second Adam type figure. Um, right after the flood narrative, uh, he's recommissioned to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
just like Adam was. <clears throat> but alas, he's not the one. He's not the seed that we find spoken of in Genesis 3.15. But, once again, his father's words let us know what's the expectation of redemption. Slowly after uh, uh, Noah, things go awry again, leading to the Tower of Babel story. Right? where you have this unified rebellion against God's commands to fill the earth, to be fruitful, multiply, and spread out. They decide to plant their roots down in one location and build a tower reaching up to the heavens. Right? Um, and then, therefore, God come, comes down in that kind of uh, irony, the dramatic irony, where they're building this huge tower, but God still has to look down and to recognize them. And he confuses their language in what I call a severe mercy, therefore uh, confusing their language is spreading them out so that they can do what they were designed to do, which is to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And it's at the uh, pivotal turning point in redemptive history, the history of salvation that's happening ever since Genesis 3.15, is Genesis chapter 12, the calling of Abraham. And uh, there, I notice that there are at least three distinctive aspects of God's call to Abraham. That is, he, he promises him a seed, a multitude of descendants. He promises him a land that he's going to show him. And he promises him that through him, God is going to bless all the nations. Right? And one observation I made about that was that whereas... Adam and Noah were commissioned to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the land um, Abraham receives that as a gift Abraham is God says I will increase you I will give you this land so, and God makes a covenant with Abraham and it's in, in Genesis I believe Genesis 15 where God uh, in this kind of ancient Near Eastern ritual um, of cutting up animals and separating their pieces and those who partake in the covenant walk through the pieces to identify if I break the covenant, may I be destroyed just like this animal is. And Abraham has this vision that he sees uh, a, kind of a symbolic representation of God passing through the pieces. God has covenanted to give Abraham this land. Right? So much so that he says, if I renege on my promises, if I fail to bring them to fruition, may I be destroyed. So, turning point in redemptive history. Then we jump, and we closed uh, last week, with uh, the theme of enslavement. Very quickly, we just looked at the first chapter of um, Exodus, and we looked at, there was this um, time passing between Abraham and his, and his descendants going into Egypt, right? So the rest of Genesis, from Genesis 12, you have the story of the, the patriarchal narrative, the story of the, the fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God reaffirms his promises that he's going to give him this land and multiply the descendants. And through um, Abraham's great-grandson, Jacob, I'm sorry, Joseph, um, the, his family is spared from famine and they're brought into Egypt. And it's all working out good as you end Genesis, right? Because Joseph is in a place of prominence Right? And he is in the good graces of the Pharaoh because he spared many lives. So therefore the people of Israel have entered Egypt under, uh, in, under good terms, essentially. And as you turn to Exodus, you find it says there was another king came to power. 
that did not know Joseph. And I said, some scholars have argued that it might have been just a, a change of dynasties. Right? So a different, a different, a changing of the guard, if you will, with different values, um, different histories. And they did not know about the Joseph story. They did not know the place of um, the role that the Israelites had in delivering many multitudes of people, including, of course, the Egyptians. And therefore, um, this new pharaoh sees the Israelites as a threat, that if, they, if there is some kind of, um, of uprising, they're so numerous that they pose a threat that to possibly overturn Egypt. And uh, one thing I noticed is that you find that this, this talk of multiplying, it happens a lot in the first chapter of, Gen- of Exodus, and is letting you know that God's promises to bless Abraham and to increase his, uh, his descendants is taking place. They're, they're just multiplying, essentially like rabbits. They're just all over the place. Right? And this is what kind of gets the Pharaoh thinking that this might not be good for him. Um, but more so than just the historical circumstances of what happened and, and why the Egyptians uh, placed the Israelites uh, under slavery, uh, more than just the historical circumstances, I said that possibly the, a better way of thinking about it, at least if a better way when it comes to reading your Bible as one story is, again, this idea of seed theology. Right? Um, the, uh, the very emblem of Egyptian power was the serpent. Right? So it becomes kind of this crystallization this, um, of the seed of the serpent opposing and right, trying to destroy the seed of the woman which comes through Abraham and now through his descendants. So you have the seed theology of the people of God, the seed of the woman, suffering under essentially demonic oppression. They are now under the seed of the serpent is now trying to destroy, trying to wipe out the seed of the woman, which bears the promise of redemption for the whole world. And... um, that leads us to where we are today. Okay, so this would be Roman numeral on your outline. And uh, we'll talk about this theme of Exodus under three headings, three major headings, which is essentially um, kind of a, a nice little breakdown of the book of Exodus, but I'm really using them, stretching it kind of to cover all the way to Deuteronomy. Um, the book of Exodus can probably helpfully be, be thought of in three movements. And these are the ones that I've given you here. Um, there's the first third of the book you can think of as uh, the Exodus. That is not the book of Exodus, the events of the Exodus. Right? Uh, it tells the story of, of Moses and identifies who he is, that he's going to be God's instrument of deliverance. And tells the story of God's bringing his people out of Egypt, out of the house and the land of bondage and slavery. Um, from there, the, the, second, uh, of the, the second third of Exodus is the giving of the law. God reveals himself to the nation and he presents, uh, he, he establishes a covenant with them. And we're going to look at that, uh, especially in uh, chapter 20 of Exodus. He establishes a covenant, reveals who he is. This, this law reveals his character and how they should live as redeemed people. And the third uh, major step, the final third, is the, uh, the instructions for the tabernacle and building the tabernacle. 
and uh, for me personally, before I, <laughs> before I ever got to uh, Leviticus, whenever I was doing my you know read the Bible in a year plan, this is where I would just peter out. Is this last third? Um, because not only do they uh, not only are the instructions for building the tabernacle, it then kind of repeats it when they actually do build the tabernacle. Um, so it can be uh, it can be rough reading because it, they're really just the instructions. Right? You can imagine how the original readers would have uh, read this. It would have been precious to them because in this final movement, this third, uh, this last third of Exodus. Uh, the creator God, Yahweh himself, is now coming to live with the people. Right? So you have this three, this kind of um, this three-step plan in Exodus, in which every um, in every act, if you want to call them acts, every act, God is bringing His people into closer and closer relationship with Himself. Right? So first, He comes as His as their deliverer, and He brings them out of Egypt. He delivers them from demonic oppression. Right? In the second act, he comes and he reveals himself to them. He's not just showing uh, just mere power right, and might, but comes to say, this is who I am, this is what I'm like, this is how we are going to live together uh, in covenant relationship. And then in the third act, he comes and he dwells with his people. He actually comes and dwells with them. Right? So he's not a God far off for them, but he's a God near to them. So those are the three major steps of Exodus. And like I said, I'm taking those themes and kind of stretching them to the rest of the Pentateuch that is from Exodus uh, to Deuteronomy. So we'll be jumping around a little bit uh, more than we have in the last two uh, lessons. So let's just turn to Deuteronomy. And any point, questions, clarifications, please feel free to uh, stop me. Um, So, we looked at chapter 1 last week, and chapter 2 talks, uh, introduces uh, Moses as, a, um, as, as this figure that God's going to use. And what's interesting, and I had a really good quote, and I couldn't find it, I typed it out somewhere, and I don't know where it is, it's somewhere on my laptop. Um, but essentially, it says that, um, I believe that Moses is the essential author of the first five books of the Bible, right? So, Genesis through De- uh, Deuteronomy. So I believe in Mosaic authorship. So I believe that Moses, as he's writing this, including his own story, his own birth narrative, is carefully crafting it so as to highlight uh, certain um, parallels. So then the readers will say, oh, it seems like God is working in patterns. And that's something that happens throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And one of the things that he does is that he highlights that uh, much of the way God has worked in his own life is the way that he works in the life of Israel. So, for instance, both Moses and the nation of Israel are, are, are sort of born through this watery ordeal. Right? So, in the beginning, right, so, um, the Pharaoh wants to destroy um, all the males, and he wants to drown them and throw them in the river, and his, his mother creates this little basket. It's really the Hebrew term is ark, uh, made of pitch, and it kind of points back to Noah. And um, he's saved through the waters. Right? Moses delivered as a baby through the waters. Well, in the same way, or at least in a similar way, the nation itself is delivered through the waters when they cross through the Red Sea. Right? When it, Egyptians are, are trying to uh, catch up to them as they're um, leaving Egypt. 
and uh, God through Moses split the Red Sea and they crossed through it as if it were on dry ground right? so, so that the miracle itself is not simply that the waters uh, split but that they're able to walk on the ground as if it were solid this is water that was all at the bottom of the sea okay? so both Moses and Israel are, uh, are essentially born and then come into existence through this watery ordeal um, both of them have an, um, an encounter with God, a turning point encounter with God uh, on a mountain. Um, both of them, in this encounter on a mountain, God reveals to him, himself to them in the form of fire. Right? So you have the burning bush, and in the case of at Mount Sinai, it seems like the whole mountain's on fire as God speaks to the nation. Right? After um, this uh, this mountain event, both of them have these, I don't know what to call them other than these transitionary periods of these 40 years. And so in the beginning, after Moses kills the Egyptian, trying to deliver the, uh, his people through might and his own power, and they say, who are you? And he, and he realizes, wait a minute, word has spread that I've killed this Egyptian, I need to get out of here. Right? And he goes and he becomes a shepherd for 40 years. In a similar way that the um, this transitionary period of between leaving Egypt and coming into Canaan, the Promised Land, uh, Israel itself has this transitionary of period of forty years. Right? Um, and there there are others that I can't think of off the top of my head. But um, Moses carefully drafts this to see the way God has worked with me. He seems to be working with the people of Israel. Right? So Moses is a central figure. Um, it's not simply he's just thrown in here. It's that he is the very instrument. He is essentially the deliverer right, and the savior of Israel at this point in redemptive history. He is God's instrument. Yeah. Um, I don't want to get into that there. There was one passage, and I thought I had it highlighted in my Bible page just for easier reference. Um, when, he, when Moses comes to Pharaoh, and he says, um, God has spoken to me, and God wants you to let my firstborn son go. Right? He wants you to release my firstborn. And Israel as a nation is identified there as God's firstborn, as God's son. Collectively, Israel is the son of God. And um, at this, this first third here, you have this kind of this competing notion of who is the true son of God. Right? Because the pharaohs, right, and, and emperors in general in the ancient Near East were generally called either the sons of God, the images of God, or the likenesses of the gods. Right? So, who is the real son of God? Is it Pharaoh? Is he the true son? Of, of God, of Amun-Ra, or is it, is it Israel? Right? And in this first third, you have this working out that, no, it is Yahweh himself will display who's his son in, this, in these great redemptive acts. Right? Not only is he going to identify who his son is, in this case is Israel the nation, but he's going to identify who he is. And through a series of plagues, he identifies who he is because um, scholars have noted that there are general parallels, not necessarily one-to-one correspondence, between the plagues that, um, the, that the Lord brings upon Egypt in bringing them out 
and various gods that the Egyptians worshipped. So it's the saying, uh, God is in charge of the frogs like those you worship. God is in charge of cosmic order that, uh, that uh, you elevate to the point of, uh, how do you say it, of um, making it as if it were a personal being. That has in control of all cosmic order. No, God is the one. Yahweh is the one who is in control of all these things. It's not these other lesser deities. Um, So God both identifies who His Son is, and God identifies who He is. Or you could another way of saying it is, um, God identifies who He is in identifying who His Son is. You mentioned a bit ago about the firstborn saying, Israel is my firstborn mm-hmm. son. Where is that? Mm-hmm. I, know, I was saying, I, I thought I had it highlighted here. I'd love to okay, spend some time. Yeah. Um, I could. I really wanted to find that. And I, I guess I had it highlighted in another Bible. Um, That's all right. That's all right. There's a problem when you use several Bibles and take notes as you find out which ones and which. Um, but I do believe, I mean, I do believe it's in the first encounter Moses has with the Pharaoh. Right? Um, okay. And if you do find it, let me know so I can scribble it in my notes. And, um, but, uh, so, Yahweh. Oh, here it is, right here. Oh, where is it? Exodus 4.22. 4.22. Yes. Uh, then say, then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go that he may worship me. Okay. But since you refuse to let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. One of the judgments. Okay. So there, like I said, Israel is identified as the son. Thank you. Um... The second major uh, act here in, in the book of Exodus is God's revealing of the law to his people. Right? Um, and uh, because of what I, what I would say are certain misunderstandings of certain New Testament statements, uh, Christians tend to look at the Old Testament and look at the law and particularly and think as if that was a bad thing. And the law of Moses is bad. You know, um, sometimes they use the terms of Paul. You know, you're not under law, but you're under grace. And um, the idea is that as we look at the law and its in its historical context, in its salvation history context, you realize that the law was a good thing. Um, like I said, God delivers the people out of Egypt and He brings them to Himself and He reveals who He is. In revealing the law, He's not simply giving them commandments about, you know, if you do this, I'll thank you. But rather, he is revealing what he's like. So as Adam was to be um, an image, Adam was created as the image of God. We talked about he's supposed to reflect the character of God. So, um, I read you that R.C. Sproul quote that said, when we sin, we essentially, we lie about who God is. Because we're created to reflect who God is. So when we sin, we're, we're saying to creation, this is what God is like. Right. Well, as a um, essentially a corporate Adam, right? uh, Israel is to reflect who God is. Right? 
So be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy is one of the things that he says to them. Right? He says, um, this is what I'm like, this is what you're supposed to be like. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. And just leave, just leave this mark there for a second. This Exodus 20, so it's in the dealing with the Ten Commandments. Um, and this is where, this is, this is within this context that God makes a covenant. Just like he made a covenant with Abraham, right, this unique relationship right, with uh, obligations and responsibilities in the parts of the covenant. So now he makes, it, he makes a, a covenant with the entire nation. It's normally called the Mosaic Covenant, which is shorthand because the covenant isn't simply with Moses, it's with the nation as a whole. And what um, various archaeologists and uh, other biblical scholars have noticed, uh, I'll, I'll round it up to 100 years, for the last 100 years is we, we found a whole lot of other ancient Near Eastern texts that kind of shed light on what's been on parallels and differences between what was going on in um, Israel and the nations surrounding it. And one of the things that we, we've come to realize is uh, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, uh, God spoke to his people in categories and in ways that they would have understood. Right? Sometimes he does that specifically to contrast the nations around them, but sometimes where it's not sinful, God reveals himself uh, to the Israelites in ways that they would have said, okay, I know what you're doing here. I've seen this before in other countries and other nations around, around us. And what he's doing here in, in chapter 20, in giving them the Ten Commandments, giving them the law, establishing the covenant with them, is he's, he's um, revealing himself to them in terms that people have called a, a suzerain vassal treaty. Suzerain vassal treaty. Whoops. So you have two different types of treaties. You have what's called a suzerain treaty, and you have uh, a parity treaty. A parity treaty is between equals. Okay? So to give one kind, normally it's of the political, the political nature, but to give you a, a kind of an idea, the, the covenant that David establishes with Jonathan later on in the Bible, that they make a covenant with one another, it's among equals. Um, a suzerain vassal treaty is a covenant made between unequals. The suzerain is the great king, the mighty emperor. And a vassal normally is a lesser king of a, of a smaller uh, domain. Right? And we found various uh, documents in which uh, you find this, um, these, these covenants. And normally they tend to follow a pattern. You know, normally what I'm going to say is two, maybe in position three, or etc. But generally you find this kind of pattern. First, you have the um, the um, the naming of the suzerain, right? So, you know, I am King Nebuchadnezzar, and then you find uh, two, for instance, what's called the historical prologue. And in the historical prologue, you have a, a, a recounting of what the suzerain, what the great king has done to benefit the vassal, the lesser king. I'm kind of speaking in general terms because depending on the covenant, um, what it could be some mighty deliverance from war, um, or it could be some kind of um, benefit of giving grain and, and food. It depends on what it is. But you have the historical prologue of what the suzerain has done to benefit the vassal. 
Right? And third, you have um, what's called the, um, the sanctions. He says, now, in light of us being bound together in this covenant, this is how you're supposed to live. Right? Um, if we're going to be on good terms, essentially. And from four are the... Um, well, I'll just, I'll just write it here as results, which is in terms of if you obey, if you keep to the terms of the covenants, I will continue to I will provide you with protection, I will provide you with food, I will provide you with shelter, etc. If you disobey, these are the things. I will come and I will raid your land. I will, I will take your sons and daughters into slavery. I will do whatever it is. These are if blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And uh, lastly, there's some form of um, some discussion regarding the preservation of the covenant, passing it down for further generations, etc. Now, not all of these um, these points here are exactly in, in Exodus 20. It becomes a little bit clearer if you go through Deuteronomy. And uh, some have argued that the entire book of Deuteronomy kind of follows this structure. And I'm not going to go into that though. Um, but when you look at Exodus 20, so we'll turn back, we'll realize that God essentially does these things. This is the way God presents himself. So the first thing he says, and, and God spoke all these words, this is the first verse, I am the Lord your God, right? so he identifies himself, and then he says what he did for them, right? who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's a, a, a compact idea of the historical prologue. He identifies himself, and then he says, this is what I've done for you. I've delivered you from slavery. And therefore, he can almost read, um, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, and etc., following the Ten Commandments. So says, in light of this, this is how you are to live. A couple of quick observations on this. Um, I can break it up this way. Um, yeah, there you go. You'll notice that, and this, this applies, this is helpful because I think this applies to us today when we realize um, if you're in Christ, you're also in covenant with God. Is that um, the idea of covenant, and I write right that just up here, covers the entirety of our lives. Right? Um, historical prologue refers to the past. Sanctions how we are to live as those who have been delivered is referring to our present. And um, as a result of what we do now, that is to say, in our stage on the timeline, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, or if you disbelieve, then the wrath of God abides on you, then that determines your future. Um, sometimes I'm also tempted to tie that into faith, hope, and love, but I won't do that now because I always go back and forth from one or two of them. Um, so our entire lives, both for the Israelites then and for us now, are determined by this idea of living in covenant with God, that we have this special relationship with God. Question? Mm-hmm. Is it covenant, a suitor and vassal treaty, or can it be either of them? Um, or is it something different? This one that I've done here is a Caesar and Vassal treaty. Okay. 
right? So uh, uh, parity, well, a parity treaty would be a covenant. Different than this one, but, but so it wouldn't look the same. You know, you can't tell an equal of. Um, but uh, a parity treaty would be a covenant, right? Um, I'm not sure if I'm getting specifically it. Well, I, I just wondered if covenant could be either type of treaty or covenant. Mm-hmm. Well, I would, yeah, I would say that um, you could almost substitute the word treaty for covenant. So you could talk about Susan Vassal covenant or, or parity covenant. Um, but the type that God has with his people specifically is of, of the unequal type case. So. Um, just, I've just been reading a book by Michael Horton. Uh-huh. Um, um, I've seen the title listed several different ways, God of Promise. Right. Um, and subtitle, uh, Introduction to Covenant Theology, mm-hmm. which is really good and explains this. And one on um, uh, Gate of Grant or something like that. Type okay, thing, yeah, Land Grants and Right. Which mm-hmm. fits more with... And that one, if you can get a hold of that, is, is really backing up. Yeah, there, there, are, yeah, there are a couple of, of really good books. One classic one now that um, uh, is still good, it's not exactly devotional reading, but it's good material, <laughs> is, um, is uh, Christ of the Covenants by Old Palmer Robertson. Then there's um, God of Promise, but I think it's been re-released. So I think the yeah. pr- the present, like if you went out to Amazon now, the present title would be yeah. Introducing Covenant Theology by Michael Horton. Yeah. Um, just, there's a whole bunch of really good ones. Um, some of them, some of the ones I'm more familiar with are kind of more academic studies. That they want the big kind of picture. Those are two really, those are two really helpful books. They're going to differ at certain points, but I won't go into that. But, but um, helpful stuff, yeah. Um, okay. Another. Thing, the takeaway that we can get from the way the law was given um, and I'm not saying anyone here suffers from this error but it's still good to always get it out there in case anyone that you know does wrestle with this is you notice that law or our responsibilities right, um, always follow from God's activity right? that is to say um, if you want to put it in these kind of theological terms okay. we don't earn God's deliverance or salvation or redemption by the things we do by the good activities we do right? because in this case he said because I saved you because I rescued you from this, uh, this demonic enslavement I have redeemed you because I've done this therefore live in light of that grace and this is how you do it it's not live this way and therefore I will redeem you and I will save you and I will deliver you so the grace proceeds and in fact gives us the motivation and the power to obey And that's one of the things that little, little findings like this, historical findings, can shed light on. Not that you wouldn't have gotten that from other parts of the Bible, but you realize even the way the Lord decided to present the material reinforces the understanding that uh, grace precedes our responsibility. Right? We, we obey because God has saved, not in order for God to save. Now, I want to go to uh, 28. Flip over to Exodus 28. 
I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Deuteronomy 28. Yeah. Now we're, we're, we're jumping. We'll go over to Deuteronomy 28. And what you notice in this, and the elders, there's some Leviticus and elsewhere. Um, this is a chapter. Now, it's a little bit of a different context. Deuteronomy is now the second generation after the wilderness wanderings. The people who were actually delivered from Egypt are now mostly dead. Right? It's the second generation that's about to go into the land and, and Moses is re-giving them the law so to make sure that they know their responsibilities before God. And he goes through this um, in 28, this, this, list, this listing, which I'm calling the... Uh, this, yeah, actually, we'll call the, the results, the, um, the outcomes um, of blessings for obedience and cursings for disobedience. Covenant blessing and covenant cursing. What does it look like? Right. And you'll notice from Bert, um I have the NIV, so for, I have the little headings, the editorial headings in here. But you'll notice that from um, verse 1 through verse 14, so you have 14 verses uh, listing in this chapter the blessings of the covenant, right? So you can see that, for instance, in, chat, in verse 3, 23, be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and they'll continue to multiply and fruitful and have children. The crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the cats of your herd, etc. And you'll be blessed in your goings in and your comings out, etc. You'll be the head and not the tail. These are blessings for obedience to the people of God. If you, if you live in light of the grace that I've shown you, these are the kind of things that are just going to uh, flow from the relationship. Now, what you also notice is that from verse 15 through basically to the end of the chapter, where's it? Verse 68. You have 14 verses for the blessings. Then you have from 15 to 68, you have the enumerations of the various covenant curse if they disobey. And most of them tend to be simply the opposite. Right, so instead of you'll be blessed when you come in and when you go out, you'll be cursed when you come in and you go out. You'll be, ble- you'll be cursed in the city, you'll be cursed in the country, etc. Things will not go well. Um, you will not be fruitful and multiply. You, the land will not uh, give you its grain, etc. Now the worst curse of the covenant here right, um, is, just look at two verses here in 36 and then again in 49. At least in this stage of redemptive history, the language isn't, and ultimately, if you continue in this, I'm going to send you to hell. Um, at this stage, what he says is, essentially, if you continue to break covenant, the Lord will drive you and the king you set over you to a nation unknown to you or your fathers. You will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone. You will become a thing of horror and the object of scorn and ridicule to all the nations where the Lord will drive you. And jump down to verse 49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down a nation whose language you will not understand. The ultimate curse of the covenant, and it gets worse within the context, is essentially siege and exile. That if, if God, one of the uh, great blessings made to Abraham is that he's going to give them a land. And you have these kind of um, um, agricultural metaphors that God is going to plant them in this land. In this good land, land flowing with milk and honey. This Eden-like land. And that's the, that's the blessing, the rich blessings of this covenant that God makes with them. Well, 
The flip side of that, the curse is, whereas instead of he planted them in the land, well then God is going to take that away from you. God is going to uproot you from the land, is going to disperse you, right? So that one of the, another great promise of uh, the Abrahamic covenant is that um, he's going to bless them and they're going to bless the nations. They're going to be a unique people. Well, when they're dispersed, they're going to essentially lose their uniqueness. Right? They're not centered into in one area. They're going to be scattered and, and lose that um, distinctness. Right? And of course, and then it, it gets worse. It says within the context of this kind of exile, the reason why is you have raiders, people from far, uh, nations you do not know, come into the land and destroy. And of course, that means people are going to die. And people aren't just going to come in and pull you out and everything, everyone's going to go willingly. People will die and there will be famine. And one of the worst things, um, which normally when I give quizzes and uh, when, I, when I teach these classes, um, I'll put, you know, what's the worst curse of the covenant? And I'll put a couple of options. And exile is there and that's the right one. And one of them that will always, you know, the most common wrong answer in this one is cannibalism. And it says, during the conditions of the siege. So it's a subset of exile. During the conditions of the siege, things will be so scarce, so rare, that people will not be able to fend for themselves. It says, people, that even a kind and a meekly woman will be willing to eat her own child to survive. Okay? Things are not going to go well. Right? That God's wrath, that rightly, um, that he has um, delivered them, but if they continue essentially to shake the fist at God and say, we have nothing to do with you. Right? We're going to follow the ways of all the other nations. This is one of the things that comes down upon them in the form of the covenant curses. Right? Um, but as kind of picturesque and grotesque as the whole understanding of cannibalism is, it happens within the context of this greater uh, concept of exile. Right? This reminds me of Romans 1. Mm-hmm. It's just people get so degraded. And the Lord would just put them. Right. And and God hands them over. And hands them over. Right. And so, you know, it's the same in the, in the New Testament. There's no right. It's not like something exactly. Is that yeah, um, we don't go out to other nations and stuff. But, I mean, this is the human nature. When you are left to yourself, mm-hmm. you know, without God's control, you know, the salt goes bad. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no effectiveness. There's no uniqueness. Mm-hmm. And, and just we let ourselves go back. Right. I mean, I mean, to kind of state the obvious, it's that Paul was a careful and critical reader of the Old Testament. Right? He, he, he knew it. So he saw this, this downward, this kind of pattern of downward spirals. Um, no. Okay, now to go back, because I want to kind of get that out in the open, that idea of blessing and curses, it goes with the whole theme of, of covenant. Um, there's this little known passage that um, in Deuteronomy 17 um, and I'll probably say this again next week but oftentimes when, when you're reading the story especially in 1 Samuel and um, Israel asks God for a king right? Samuel is the um, he's the prophet he's, he's they have no king at this point he's, a, he's the last of the judges and the people come to the prophet Samuel and say, we want a king like the other nations. And um, Samuel's kind of broken up about it because he feels like they're rejecting him. And God says, listen, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king. Right? And that's bad. Um, but people sometimes will look at that and say, well, then the understanding was that Israel was never designed to have a king. That monarchy was a bad idea from the get-go. 
And I, I don't think that's the best way to, to look at this because of this passage here in Deuteronomy 17. In the, the context, again, of Deuteronomy is they're about to go into the land. This is after the 40 years of, of wilderness wandering. Their second generation, it was called the Joshua generation, is about to go into the land. He gives them instructions to get them ready. Moses gives them final instructions to get them ready. And then you have this passage of the king. The Deuteronomy, starting in verse 14, says, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, have taken possession of it and have and settled in it, and you say, Let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you the, the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself, or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, taken from that of the priests, who are Levites. He is to, it is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God, and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Okay. Then he and his descendants will reign over uh, will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. <clears throat> the problem that um, is in 1 Samuel right, where God says they rejected me is not simply, it's not just, it's not that they wanted a king is that they wanted a king like other Lofres, like the other nations. We want a king the way they have it. And what you find in this passage is God says, when you come to the land and you ask for a king, that's okay. You haven't done anything wrong. But if you're going to have a king, this is the way it's going to be done. And the way he describes the king is completely countercultural. Anybody reading this document, aware of ancient Near Eastern monarchs, would have looked at it and say, What? That is not a king at all. Right? The, the common uh, way of um, status, essentially status symbols for kings, were, um, to use one author's way of putting it, was uh, uh, wealth, weapons, and women. Right? And that's explicitly what the Lord says he shall not do. He shall not multiply horses or wives or gold and silver. Right? So then all dependency is always on God. God will deliver us from armies. God will deliver us um, when it comes to um, our sustenance, the, the, the material prosperity of the nation. Right? And, and he says, do not marry all these foreign women. Why? Because they're going to lead your heart astray. Just as kind of a heads up, these are the exact things that Solomon did. Right? Um, just as an aside, so much so that some critical scholars will look at this and say, this could not possibly have been written before Solomon. Right? I don't believe that. Um, but they would say, no, no, this was definitely some guy at a later time who didn't like Solomon's uh, reign, wrote this back into Deuteronomy so then it could make it seem like Moses was condemning Solomon. Right? So that... I don't, I don't think that's the case. I'm not going to go into the details for that now. But um, it's saying his, his errors, his, 
Solomon's uh, mistakes were ex- he, he, he basically be- tried to become in this later half of his, king, uh, his reign a king like the other nations he lost he was losing his distinctness and one of the reasons why this happened was because he multiplied wives right? so it was, it was the commingling so to speak of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman so when that happens it's never the case where the seed of the woman then, then the um, overtakes you know corrupts so to speak the seed of the serpent no right? uh, bad character corrupts good morals as Paul says um, Solomon's heart was led astray and this is exactly what's kind of built into the instructions for the king okay? another reason why I would say it's not necessarily a bad thing to have a king is when you look back in Genesis which I highlighted them saying that kings will come from Abraham right? it said there the idea that Abraham, uh, Jacob's blessing on Judah that the scepter will not depart from him and you said that's kind of royal language there are other parts of Numbers where this kind of prophesied the understanding of this, this king that's going to arise from Judah right? so I think in light of those other things we see this in Deuteronomy and we say okay um, the way I would understand is that this, this Genesis 3.15 promise is getting filtered and ultimately it's going to come down to who this king is where, whenever he shows up on the, the timeline right? it doesn't happen in this half of our Bible um, so he establishes a covenant he gives uh, that's what Lex Rex I'm sorry I should have explained that um, Lex Rex is Latin for law of the king right and normally it's been taken to mean the, the law that the king gives but in this case I mean the law that the king with the capital K gives for um, the Israelite king because so he's not supposed to multiply wives, women and uh, women wealth and weapons right but he's supposed to handwrite a copy of the law so he's supposed to be intimately familiar with this with this right? with, yeah so he's writing down Deuteronomy yeah he's writing down Deuteronomy he's writing down so he knows he can't say I didn't know that I was supposed to do this I didn't know I was supposed to lead the people in this way as opposed to this way because so he hand wrote it and if anybody's ever hand copied something you know, it helps for you to memorize it right? and another reason he gives is so that he will learn to revere the Lord his God because right? it's still this suzerain vassal right? the king becomes kind of the representative of the nation right? but he's not ultimate he is ultimately under the authority of Yahweh the great king uh, I actually got it sure yeah, no problem. Yeah. Um, question here yeah <clears throat> it seems like in Deuteronomy, when he gives the law to the second generation, it seems like there's a lot of stuff that's added that wasn't there in the original law, at least in the text. Well, what's interesting is one of the things that comes to mind that's different is um, in the in the re-giving, I can't remember the chapter off the top of my head, but in Deuteronomy they give the Ten Commandments again, right? And they're the same Ten Commandments, but in the um, for instance, um, in the giving of the law of the Sabbath right, the motivation changes right? and I can't remember which order it is but there's one where he says uh, one is rooted in creation the first time or I can't remember which order it is and then the second time changes not for creation but for redemption so first time he says okay you're going to, um, you're going to uh, rest on the seventh day because in six days the Lord created the world on the seventh day he rested so therefore you're supposed to mirror him so you do the same thing 
And then the second generation, when he re-gives law, he says, uh, in, um, you're supposed to take the seventh day off because you were once slaves and you were once... Um, you were slaves in captivity in Egypt and the Lord delivered you from that and in, in light of the fact that you've been delivered from, from this old, this harsh labor you commemorate that on the seventh day and there, there are other things like what you said they're there, they're, they're, he expands or he clarifies or he applies it to the second generation yeah I mean I can't think of others the curses is that Exodus when first like yeah, you find in for the first generation, I can't remember if it's in Exodus, but you do have um, a section on uh, blessings and cursings in Leviticus, which is first generation. Yeah, um, I don't remember exactly off the top of my head where. And I think you may have some in numbers, but it may be a small section. Um, anyway, I'm going along anyway, and you might not get to everything here. So um, we'll cover this last point, and then we'll be done on the tabernacle two things um, is in the in the last third of both Exodus the last point I want to make here in the giving of uh, giving the law reveals himself the tabernacle comes to live with the people two major things first is what I'm calling the Emmanuel principle right remember what Emmanuel means in Matthew God with us right so um, in Giving and, and instructions for the tabernacle, God is pressing forth the idea that He is going to personally, intimately live with the people, and that's reinforced in a couple of ways. One is the fact that, um, um, well, normally the camp was set up like this. You have the major tents of meeting. We have the holy place and the holy of holies here, and you had about you know three tribes here and three tribes here and three tribes the camps were around right? and in the ancient areas normally in a um, when a nation went out to war the king was tempted in the middle right? so it's saying yes the king of Israel in this traveling kind of experience this nomadic existence is in the midst of his people he lives with them right? uh, it's also reinforced with the understanding similar ideas just different ways of looking at it where the metals in the um, in the ornamentation as you move in towards the Holy of Holies get more and more precious and rare the metals get more precious and rare and expensive etc so um, that's the Emmanuel principle God is dwelling in the midst of his people and it's hammered away at different, in different ways and three is essentially the, what I call three gospel truths right? where you're reading the New Testament you're reading the Old Testament you're looking for one way in which um, uh, this bears witness to Christ is first principle I didn't write them down but the first principle essentially is that um, um, God well let's put it this way uh, sin bars sin prohibits uh, fallen human beings from God's presence right um, so you, the second principle is essentially God desires to live amongst his people, his redeemed people. Okay? He wants intimate fellowship and relationship with them. Okay? Um, and he, and he, uh, he provides the way. That's why he gives all of these instructions and how to build these things. And the third point is that um, reconciliation and redemption, uh, they come about, they are affected through the, through the mediation of a priest. This is part of the instructions God gives, right? So, sin prohibits us from being in God's presence, 
but God takes the initiative and uh, provides a way and that way is essentially is, uh, is put into effect through the mediation of a priest right? um, and as if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews that's exactly what uh, the author there argues is that Jesus is our great high priest right? he is the well he's actually more than simply the great high priest one way I like to think about it is if you think of the Old Testament as a, um, a play the first act you have all of these characters and then the second act all the good roles are taken by one person okay? so Jesus isn't simply um, the priest he's also the sacrifice okay? he's also a representative of the people who offer the sacrifice he's also playing the part of the God who accepts the sacrifice okay? so all of um, the essential roles of uh, the main institutions of Israel then Jesus takes um, to himself in the new covenant but those are essentially three gospel truths when you're looking okay the idea of reconciliation through the mediation of a priest on behalf of the people to bring the blessing of God that's all that's all in the Old Testament and the apostles didn't make this stuff up in the new now we're not going to have time to do the entrance though, so we'll cover that uh, next week what are the three gospel truths like? Um, sure. Yeah, if I could. Yeah, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> one is that sin separates man from God. Right? Um, two would be God provides a way of reconciliation. And the third would be the something along the lines of the reconciliation is affected through um, the work of a priest through the mediation of being a mediator between God and man so you want to the shortest in that I don't know <laughs> okay hey, any last questions before we go okay that's our closing prayer right. Father